This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Catania by Lara Vapniar, which was published in The New Yorker in October of 2013. What my family lacked was a father, but a father doll was a true rarity. Nobody I knew had a father doll. Most of the kids I knew didn't even have fathers. I didn't have a father. Mine died when I was two. The story was chosen by Waiki Wang, whose first novel, Chemistry, won the Penn Hemingway Award in 2018. Hi, Waiki. Hi, Deborah. How are you doing? All right. Thanks for joining us. So when we talked about doing the podcast, Lara Vapniar was your first thought. Why was that? First thought. Neon sign went off in my head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've read the story many times, but this was one of the first stories that you know, uh, from the magazine that I read. And then it stuck with me for a really long time. And since then, I've read her older stories in the magazine, but also all of her collections, her novels. I think her most recent one about the death of her mother. um, Right. Divide Me by Zero. It's a great example of being introduced to a very small piece of a writer's work and then wanting to read everything about what she's written and seeing what kind of terrain she covers and So she's one of those writers that I'm always recommending her to everyone. (laughs) What was it about this story when you read it that made such an impression? I think she does a great job of being very laser focused on an experience from childhood that has an impact in in adulthood for this protagonist and um, her friend, while also taking on something as large as maybe the immigrant experience, but having that happen mostly off stage, And I found that incredible that the first half is mostly set, you know, in a foreign country with um, girls who are just like girls in any country. And somehow we end up in a different place by the end of the story. I'm just amazed at how much time and also territory was covered with very, very specific characters and just dolls. And you also write um, fairly often about the life of immigrants in the U.S. And um, the story is about Russian immigrants, not uh, immigrants from China. But uh, do you feel that there's overlap in your interests? Right. I did feel a certain kinship about that experience, very familiar terrain. It it was eerie when I read it because I I understood so much about the interior of the, the protagonist and that relationship, but also just the backdrop of what was happening. And class, class within immigrants, class in your native country, in your new country. I found that was done so expertly, but very, very, very subtly. Yeah. When you read the story in in 2013, were you writing already or were you still in the sciences? I was writing. I was um, writing a little bit. I was taking night classes. I was reading a lot. But I sort of say I did kind of a 10-year grad program because I was in grad school for so long, figuring out what I wanted to do. But I was doing both at that time. Writing was still sort of a pastime or a hobby that I didn't ever imagine would be something I would ever try to pursue professionally. Right. Perhaps the story pointed you in that direction a little bit. A little bit. Um, (laughs) Just seeing these kind of characters on the page and feeling that, oh, this is worthwhile to write about, to think about, and also something that I've just, I've remembered for years, and I will always remember. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Waiki Wang, reading Catania by Lara Vapniar. Catania. When I was a child, I had a family of doll people. They lived in a red shoebox painted to look like a house with a dark brown roof and yellow awnings. Inside the house, there was a set of plastic toy furniture, plus some random household items, a matchbox television, a mirror crafted from a piece of foil, and a thick rug secretly cut out of my old sweater. I also had a few plastic farm animals, a cow, a pig, a goat, and a very large, larger than the cow, chicken, which lived outside the shoebox. The family itself consisted of the following individuals. One pretty little doll made of soft plastic with painted on hair and dress, who, in my games, represented me. 
One naked, bald, vaguely female doll made of hard, shiny plastic, whom I designated the mother. I made her a Greek-style tunic out of an old handkerchief and glued a lock of my own hair to her head. Two tiny baby dolls of unidentified gender made of hard matte plastic and wrapped in blankets of the same kind of plastic. And one hedgehog with a human body dressed in a long skirt and apron with tight curly hair covered with a kerchief to whom I assigned the role of grandmother. What my family lacked was a father, but a father doll was a true rarity. Nobody I knew had a father doll. Most of the kids I knew didn't even have fathers. I didn't have a father. Mine died when I was two. My family consisted of my mother, my grandmother, and me. That was perfectly normal. Fathers had a tendency to die, or to lose themselves to alcoholism, or to simply up and go. Our next-door neighbor up and went to the far north one night. He announced his decision by screaming on the staircase, I'm sick of you all. So you're just going to up and go, huh? Well, good riddance, his wife screamed back. But his three-year-old daughter cried for weeks. I could hear her through the thin walls of our apartment. Fatherlessness was so common that even the Soviet authorities were aware of it. The Soviet authorities were famous for being protective of their citizens. So whenever a certain item was scarce, they did their best to make the scarcity less conspicuous. My mother, who used to write school textbooks, was prohibited from even mentioning those scarce items. When composing a math problem, for instance, she couldn't mention bananas because they were impossible to get in most parts of Russia. She could use apples, but not bananas, chicken, but not beef, mothers, but not fathers. She was allowed to write, a mother gave her three children six apples and asked them to divide the fruit equally, but forbidden to write about a father asking his kids to do the same thing with bananas. She told me this when I was in my teens, and I didn't believe her. I combed through my old textbooks to try to prove her wrong, but I couldn't find a single mention of a father, beef, or bananas. So imagine my surprise, my joy, when I suddenly got a father doll as a gift. My uncle had bought it for me on a business trip to Bulgaria. It was a beautiful doll, just the right size, a little shorter than the mother and the grandmother, but taller than the kid. It had a hard body and a face made of soft, squeezable plastic painted in masculine shades of brown. Brown eyes, brown lips, brown nostrils, brown hair made out of some very hair-like material, a perpetual warm brown smile. It was dressed in what appeared to be a Bulgarian national costume, a felt hat and boots, rumpled cotton pants, embroidered shirt, and a leather belt. This was exactly how I imagined an ideal father would look. The father doll had only one imperfection, a bad hip. His left leg wouldn't stay in place. It kept detaching from his torso and dangling in his pants. But I loved the doll so much that I didn't see even this as a shortcoming until Tanya pointed it out. Tanya and I had become friends exactly 10 months before the arrival of the father doll. It was September, the first week of school, and Tanya threw a tantrum during the annual tea with parents. We were all crowded into our small classroom with our parents crouching over our kids-sized desks. The school cafeteria provided us with hot tea, but the parents were required to bring pastries and cakes and also a cup and a saucer for their child and themselves. Tanya's mother had apparently brought the wrong cup. I wanted the blue one, Tanya screamed. The blue one with the gold rim. The blue one. The blue one. Her voice rose so high that I kept an eye on my cup, hoping it would break the way cups sometimes did in movies when someone screamed like that. But then I realized that it was far more interesting to watch Tanya. She had fair skin, covered with pale freckles. She had turned tomato red, but her freckles had stayed the same color. I'd never seen anything like that. She closed her eyes and squeezed her hands into fists, and a vein throbbed on her temple, bright blue and fat. Everybody else in the room fell silent. Our teacher was very young, barely out of college, and she had no idea what to do. But Tanya's mother simply stood up and smiled and said that she'll go home and get the blue one. She was a tall woman with a large, soft body and a fair complexion like Tanya's. Even her hair was the same color as her daughter's. Only hers was fixed in a bun on the back of her head, and Tanya's was plaited into a thick braid. Tanya's tantrum ended as soon as her mother was out the door. She opened her eyes and sat down, and her skin quickly faded back to pale pink. The teacher asked if she was okay, and she nodded. Everybody started chatting, pouring tea, and cutting cake again, as if the tantrum had never happened. But I couldn't take my eyes off Tanya. She noticed my admiring stare and smiled at me with a warm and very grown-up expression. 
Don't you just hate it when you have to drink your tea from the wrong cup, she said. I nodded respectfully, as if I were very familiar with the difficulty of this situation. But what I admired was her courage. I would never have had the guts to throw a tantrum, and my mother would never have taken it so calmly. Just a few days before, she had kicked me in the ribs simply for crawling around on the floor and meowing while she was on the phone. I didn't blame her. I'd try to meow into the receiver, even though I knew that she was talking to her boss. After that tea, Tanya and I started walking home together. We lived in the same building, which was only five minutes away from school. It was nine stories high and extremely long. It looked like a skyscraper lying on its side. There were 12 entrances. I lived in number two. Tanya lived in number nine. Across the street from our building, there was an abandoned apple orchard. We often stopped there on the way home. We'd climb one of the trees and sit swinging our legs and talking about school, about our favorite cartoons, about our dolls. But I could never stay more than 15 minutes or so because my grandmother was waiting for me at home. Once, I complained to Tanya about what a pest my grandmother was. Tanya said that her grandmother was dead. She died a year ago. Her lungs didn't work. She was breathing like this. Tanya did a very good impression of rhythmic wheezing. My grandfather died of a stroke, I said. His whole body was paralyzed. He couldn't even go to the bathroom by himself. The nurse had to stick her hand up his butt and get the poop out. My grandmother's sister died of a stroke too, Tanya said. She was in a coma. I don't think she pooped at all. How did your father die? I asked. I knew that Tanya didn't have a father, and for some reason I assumed that he was dead, like mine. My father isn't dead, Tanya shrieked, her face turning red the way that it had at the tea with parents. He's away on a business trip in America. He misses me every day. I was so stunned by her sudden change of mood that I couldn't process her words. I just stood there staring at her. She swung her school bag as if she were about to hit me on the head with it, but changed her mind and ran off towards her entrance. I went home crying. I cried on and off for the rest of the day. My grandmother and then my mother kept asking me what was wrong, but I wouldn't say. I didn't really understand it myself. Perhaps what I was feeling was shame, not just the mortification of having made the wrong assumption about Tanya's father, but the deeper, sickening humiliation of being excluded from the elite group of children who had fathers. The next day at school, I tried to avoid Tanya. I did my best not to look in her direction during classes. I didn't talk to her at recess. I sat at the opposite end of the table at lunch, and at the end of the day, I went into the bathroom and waited there until everybody had gone home. It didn't work. When I finally came out, I saw Tanya waiting for me on the school porch. I considered pretending that she wasn't there, but then decided that that would be too silly. We walked home together. After that instant, we never talked about our families again, but we did talk about our dolls. I would boast about how many animals mine had, a cow, a pig, a really huge chicken. And Tanya would say with a dismissive smile, Mine live in a city. There is no space for farm animals. Their names are Sigrid, Amaranta, and Arabella. Amaranta and Arabella are scientists, but Sigrid is an actress. One day, Tanya invited me over. I hesitated. She had a key hanging around her neck on a long blue ribbon. A lot of kids in my class had their apartment key hanging around their neck. They were supposed to go home, let themselves in, heat up their dinner, and wait for their mother to come home. They knew how to turn on a stove. They didn't worry that the match would burn down too quickly and hurt their fingers. They knew how to pour soup from the pot into their bowl without splashing it all over the floor. I couldn't imagine ever becoming that accomplished. My grandmother was always waiting for me at home. She would watch from the window, and as soon as she saw me, she would put dinner on the stove and rush to open the door. I didn't have to ring the bell, let alone unlock the door myself. I was afraid that if I went to Tanya's apartment, I would somehow betray my incompetence. But if I didn't go, I might betray my incompetence in an even worse way. I went. Tanya unlocked the door with admirable skill. I said that I needed to call my grandmother. Tanya pointed to the phone, which stood on a little shelf next to the coat rack. I called and told a complicated lie about an after-school gymnastics class. I hoped the gymnastics thing would impress my grandmother, who was always telling me that if I didn't do gymnastics, I would grow up with a crooked back. The lie worked, and I turned to Tanya, expecting her to be impressed with my ingenuity. What I saw instead was a cold, mocking expression. Her apartment was smaller than ours, only one room, we had three, 
The TV was smaller, and the furniture shabbier, and the dishes in the cupboard didn't gleam the way ours did. Do you want some of my dinner? Tanya asked. I imagined her asking me to light a match or ladle the soup and shook my head. Good, she said. I'm not hungry either. Do you want to see my dolls? I did, very much so. Tanya's dolls lived in a shoebox too. Only her shoebox was white and stood perched on the edge of a large dresser. It's a skyscraper, she explained, like they have in America. The dolls didn't have a lot of furniture, but they had a plastic airplane placed on a little shelf by the box. A tiny ladder led from inside their apartment to the plane. They need it when they go on business trips, or if there is a fire in the building, they can just get in the plane and fly off. Where are they now? I asked. Arabella is away on a business trip, but I can show you Amaranta and Sigrid. Amaranta was sitting in the bathtub. She looked a lot like my mother doll, but bigger and less bold. Sigrid was still in bed. Her head rested on a tiny pillow, and her body was covered with a handkerchief. She was a tiny blonde made of polished wood. She was beautiful and thin and foreign in a way my dolls could never hope to be. She's very pretty, I said. She's talented, too, Tanya said. As I was putting on my shoes to go home, I spotted another little doll stuck behind the shoe rack. This one was plastic. She had broken arms and a smashed and faced. I figure that this was Arabella. The next time, we went to my place. My grandmother gave us barley soup and chicken with mashed potatoes. I was a little worried that Tanya wouldn't like the food and would throw a tantrum or something, but she ate quickly and gracefully, said thank you, and carried her dishes to the sink when she was done. My grandmother was delighted with her. After dinner, I led Tanya into my room. She took everything in with a quizzical expression, as if making an inspection. So you have your own room? she asked. I nodded. I was suddenly impressed by the fact that I had my own room. And you have a balcony? I said, yeah. She walked over to the rug that was hanging on the wall above my bed and yanked at its tassels. And you have rugs and everything, she said. I nodded and yanked at the tassels too. You're rich, aren't you? I shrugged. I honestly didn't know whether we were rich or not. Tanya seemed to like my dolls. She took them out of the box one by one and nodded in approval. She smiled at the grandmother. Hedgehog, that's clever, she said. She petted my pig. She stroked the cow's back. So they're farmers, right? They live in a village, she asked. I had never thought about this. They had a barn and all those animals, so I suppose they were farmers and did live in a village. Listen, Tanya said, let's give your animals a bath. But then my grandmother came in and said that it was time for Tanya to go home and for me to do my homework. See this key, Tanya said, pointing to the key around her neck. I can come and go as I please, but you, you're stuck with your grandmother. You may be rich, but I have my freedom. Even then at seven, I found the pathos of her words nauseating, but I was more pleased than angered. After she left, I looked around my room at the balcony door, the rug, the nice furniture, and the red shoebox full of well-to-do farmers, and I felt enormous satisfaction. I didn't have a key, but so what? I guess I didn't care that much about freedom. My newfound identity was shattered as soon as my mother got home. I asked her if we were rich. She laughed for two full minutes then bent over and pointed to her feet. Look at my boots, she said. Do they look like the boots of a rich person to you? The boots were scuffed, discolored, and covered with brown stains. Later that night, on my way to the bathroom, I overheard my mother and grandmother talking about Tanya. What do you think of that girl? My mother asked. I don't know. Apparently, she told Katya we were rich. Rich? Now it was my grandmother's turn to laugh. Then she blew her nose and said, she seemed polite. Polite, huh? I wish you could see how she treats her mother. And my mother told my grandmother about the tea with parents tantrum. After that, she started whispering. I couldn't hear anything. Fortunately for me, my grandmother, who was partly deaf, couldn't hear either. My mother had to switch back to her normal volume. She said she'd heard that Tanya's father had defected. I heard my grandmother gasp. Svita's aunt said that he went on a business trip to the States and stayed, just like that went to the authorities there and asked for refugee status or something. Can you imagine not caring about your wife and kid at all? Svitazant said that Tanya's mother was taken in for questioning. I'm sure she hadn't even known about his plans. Of course she hadn't, my grandmother said. Still, she got fired from her job. That poor, poor woman. After that, they started talking about our leaky fridge and whether it was time to call somebody to fix it, and I tiptoed back to my room. I didn't entirely understand what they'd been talking about, 
but I gathered that what Tanya's father had done was something hateful and ugly. I felt sorry for Tanya, but I also gloated a little. My father might have died, but at least he hadn't done it on purpose. In January, Tanya proposed that we create a country for our dolls. We named it Catania, a combination of our names, Katya and Tanya, and decided that it should have only two inhabited places, a village called Katuski and a city called T-City. The next step was to create a map. We took four huge sheets of papers, taped them together, and started drawing. We painted the road from Katushki to T-City, the usual brown color of roads. It meandered through the green of the woods, got almost as far as the ocean, made a loop, and returned to a bridge across the river. To make the river, we cut a wavy strip of foil from a chocolate wrapper and glued it to the map. The bridge was a simple strip of gray paper that we glued over the river. We weren't happy with the bridge because the yellow glue seeped out from under the edges and spilled all over the river. You know what it looks like, I asked Tanya, pointing to the glue stains. Snot, she said, and I laughed because that was exactly what I was thinking. We spent months crouching over that map, drawing and redrawing the contours, changing or enhancing the colors until our hands turned glossy and dark from all the paint. It was so much fun that I was sorry when the summer vacation started because I knew that Tanya would be going to stay with her grandfather in his village. My own summer was uneventful, because I refused to go to camp. But it's free, my mother lamented. My office pays for it. I was adamant. At the end of June, she took a week off to take me to Leningrad. But I came down with a fever on the train ride there and couldn't enjoy the trip. On hot July weekends, my mother and I would take the morning train to the countryside, where we strolled down a dirt path through a wood to a pond, and we swam and then ate hard-boiled eggs and cheese on a grassy hill that smelled like hay. We always stayed a little longer than we planned and had to run to the station to catch our train back to Moscow. On weekdays, I mostly stayed in our sweltering apartment, pacing around my room, complaining that I was bored. One day I got inspired, took four old wooden rulers, broke them into pieces, and glued them back together in the shape of a chicken coop. My huge chicken barely fit inside. Otherwise, I mostly neglected my dolls. But then my uncle came back from Bulgaria and brought me the father doll. I don't think I ever loved a toy so much. I spent the first week just playing with him all day long. When I noticed his bad hip, I tried to fix it with tape. But when that didn't work, I decided that he was even better this way, even more special. I would feed him and dress him, his boots were removable, and make the other family members dote on him. How's your leg today, honey? Better? No? Not even a little? Well, sit down and rest, then and he would beam his brown smile at everything and everybody. I loved to sit him on the sofa next to the little girl doll and a pig or goat and have them watch my Matchbox TV. They stayed like that for hours while the babies slept and the grandmother cooked in the kitchen and the mother either worked or pasted her hair on in the bathroom. Isn't it a picture of happiness? My mother exclaimed, and I didn't like her sarcasm one bit. I couldn't wait to show my new doll to Tanya. I counted the days until August 22nd, the day she was supposed to come back. But Tanya didn't come on the 22nd, nor did she come on the 23rd. I called her a million times, and even walked by her window, looking up, hoping to catch sight of her. She called me on the 25th to say that she was sick with a stomach flu. I offered to visit her, but Tanya said she'd come to my place the next day. She rang the bell at 9 in the morning as we were finishing breakfast. I got out of my chair so fast that I knocked over the soft-boiled egg on my plate, spilling the yolk onto the table. Tanya had grown about an inch over the summer. She was taller than me. She had also lost weight and got a nice tan. Her skin was now darker than her hair. My grandmother offered her some breakfast, but she said she'd just eaten. Grandmother then urged me to come back and finish my meal. I refused. I couldn't wait any longer. I took Tanya by the elbow and dragged her toward my room. Look, look what I've got, I kept chanting. The whole doll family was gathered in their living room, the family and the little girl on the sofa, the mother and grandmother on the chair at the table. The twins lay on the floor because there was no other place for them. Tanya didn't notice the father at first. She thought I was referring to the chicken coop. She approves of the chicken coop. She said, that's clever. No, I said, pointing to the father doll. Look here, look what I've got. It's their father. Now Tanya saw him. She seemed to tense all over, then she reached into the box. There was a certain stiffness to her movements that made me apprehensive. She picked the father up gingerly, slowly, and brought him close to her face. For a second, I was afraid that she was going to eat him. 
but she just examined him, touched his hair, stroked the felt on his hat, sniffed at his leather boots. It's a boy doll, she said in a grieved tone. Yeah, I said, it's a boy doll. It's their father. She was about to put him back when she noticed that his left leg was dangling in his pants. It's damaged, she said, and I saw an expression of relief spread across her face. No, it's not damaged, I said. Yes, it is. It's a cripple, she said. He's not a cripple, I said, and reached to take the father back. She dodged away from me. He's a cripple, all right. And look at that stupid smile. Is he a retard, too? He's not, I screamed. I tried to grab my father doll out of her hands, but she jumped away. Cripple and retard, cripple and retard. She started to sing, swinging the father in her hand. Your father is worse, I screamed. She stopped singing and stared at me. I tried to remember that ugly word my mother had used. Defitted, defitated, affected. I couldn't. I had to put it in the words I knew. He ran off. He up and went, I said. He doesn't care about you. He hates you. He's sick of you. Tanya's face was turning that scary beet color. I didn't care. He's never coming back. You're lying, Tanya yelled and punched me on the shoulder. I tried to hit her back, but she ducked, then lunged for the balcony door, brandishing the father doll in her hand like a trophy. I imagined him falling nine floors down to the pavement, his dear face destroyed, just like Arabella's. I leaped at Tanya and fell to the floor on top of her, pounding her in the chest. Her body felt firm and resilient under my fists, as if it were made of durable rubber. I'd had no idea that hitting someone could feel so good. I kept pounding, even after she had released the father and started to wail. I didn't stop until my mother and my grandmother ran into the room and pulled me off her. My mother punished me by taking away my dolls for two months. She put all the animals into the shoebox with the people, closed the lid and balanced it on top of the bookcase, as if it were nothing, as if it weren't a house where a family lived. I remember crying and counting the days until I'd get them back. But when my mother finally handed me the box, I was disappointed. The dolls didn't seem so interesting anymore. They led their quiet, uneventful lives in the shoebox. The children either slept or misbehaved. The grandmother snarled at them. The father nursed his bad hip. The mother kept losing her hair. By the end of the year, I had stopped playing with the dolls altogether, and my grandmother gave them to the little girl next door, the one whose father had gone up to the far north. Tanya and I didn't play together anymore. We avoided each other at school. Then, a year later, she and her mother moved, and she transferred to a different school. I didn't see her again until the end of high school, when her mother threw a going-away party for her. Tanya was moving to America. Her father had arranged for her to go to college there. I didn't want to go to the party, but my mother insisted. Tanya had grown a whole head taller than me and acquired a strange, restless manner. She talked very fast, with fidgety gestures, and her eyes kept flickering from one object to another. She said that her father had got back in touch about two years earlier, but I couldn't ask her any questions because there were so many people there, and all of them wanted to talk to Tanya or kiss her or corner her against a wall and give her useless advice. I didn't stay at the party long, but I kept thinking about it for days. It was odd that Tanya had invited me in the first place when we hadn't spoken for years. Apparently, she needed me, of all people, to know that her father did care about her after all. Ten years later, when my husband and I immigrated to the U.S., I tried to look her up, but couldn't find her. I assumed that she had changed her name. Another eight years passed, and then, all of a sudden, I got a message from her on Facebook. Aren't you Katya V from my old school? I just finalized my divorce and changed back to my maiden name. If I hadn't done that, she wouldn't have been able to find me. I was aching to know what had become of her, or at least what she looked like now, but her Facebook page didn't tell me much. She barely posted anything, and her face in the profile picture was half-blocked by the child in her arms. Tanya said that she was spending the summer at her house in the Berkshires and invited me to visit. She had caught me at a strange moment in my life. I was about to start a two-week vacation, my first since the divorce, and the first I would spend alone. But I had no idea what to do with it. Back when most of my friends were planning their summer, the pain of the divorce had been too great and the future too murky for me to commit to anything. I had assumed that I would be too depressed to go anywhere. The protective layer I had grown during my married years had been peeled off, leaving me completely exposed. But when the summer finally started, I found that I felt better. The idea of being on my own began to excite me. 
I still felt exposed, but I also felt that the exposure would help me regain some long-forgotten intensity of living. With no husband's wishes to satisfy, I could go anywhere I wanted, except that the nice vacation spots were already booked and the affordable plane tickets were gone. Tanya's invitation gave me an idea. I'll drive up to her place, visit with her, and then continue driving north. No plan, no destination. I'll just drive as far as I wanted and find somewhere to stay. I'd never done anything like this, but I felt that it was time to do things I'd never done before. Tanya sent incredibly detailed driving instructions and insisted that I turn off my GPS. In my years of driving in the U.S., I'd become addicted to my GPS, and I couldn't imagine turning it off. So, I decided to keep Tanya's directions in mind while listening to the GPS and to follow my intuition whenever they disagreed. This strategy got me lost as soon as I ventured off the highway, but I didn't really mind. The closer I got to Tanya's place, the more I dreaded our initial conversation. I did want to talk about our childhood, but to get there, we would need to catch up first. I'd have to tell her that my mother had died, that I probably wouldn't be able to have children, and that my husband had left me. Up and went, because he was sick of me. I guess I didn't really understand the cruelty of those words until my divorce. At least my career was on the right track. That was something. Recalculating, the GPS informed me for the 20th time in the face of my disobedience. It demanded that I go back to the highway, which was clearly wrong. But Tanya's direction had also stopped making sense. I decided to disregard both of them and took the prettiest road that led uphill. I realized that I hadn't visited the countryside in years. All those quaint horses, all those barns, all those animals and pastures made me feel both nostalgic and alienated. I knew that I'd never want to live in a place like this. At some point, I came to a fork in the road. I chose to veer to the right and continue uphill. A beautiful property came into view, a meadow full of daisies, a little pond with a single duck, a cluster of lilac bushes, a few apple trees, an extensive vegetable garden, and at the top of the hill, a house that looked remarkably like my old shoebox. It was painted red with yellow awnings. I slowed down to admire the view just as my GPS reluctantly announced that I had reached my destination. I drove a few feet forward and saw the address printed on a little sign, 12 Berry Hill Road. As I pulled into the driveway, the front door was opened by a large woman in a flowery sundress, her blonde hair fixed in a little bun. My first thought was that Tanya's mother had come to visit, but then I realized that this was Tanya herself, Tanya who had grown large and soft. When she hugged me, it felt like being smothered in a down blanket. Within 10 minutes, I understood that I needn't have worried about having to tell her all the sad things that had happened in my life. She didn't ask me any questions, and she didn't let me talk. As soon as I set foot in the house, she began a never-ending tour up and down the stairs, in and out of doors, through rooms, across halls. She didn't even offer me a drink. I had to ask for a glass of water, and then she gave me a bottle of Evian to drink on the go. Tanya talked faster than ever, and there was no way to protect myself from the gushes of information. Post and beam, restored and reassembled in 1993, hemlock timber, wooden pegs, dyed plaster walls, central air, finished sauna off the master bedroom, Japanese toilet in the guest bathroom. After four hours in the car, I used this with great enthusiasm. Six bedrooms wasn't so big, she informed me. The in-laws had a 12-bedroom in a neighboring town. Their pond was ridiculous, though, not fit for swimming. Tanya's pond was perfect, but the kids still preferred to swim in the pool. The kids were away right now, attending a tennis day camp. A large frame photograph of the family graced the living room wall above a huge, obviously antique sofa. In the picture, Tanya, her husband, and their two daughters sat on that same sofa, smiling. I thought that they were smiling a little too hard. I liked the look of the older girl, though. She reminded me of the Tanya I'd known as a girl. The adult Tanya took a long look at the picture. I guess we're happy, she said. Pretty hard not to be in a house like this, I said and bit my tongue. But fortunately, Tanya didn't hear the sarcasm in my tone. The tour was starting to wear me out. I didn't know what reaction she expected. Continuous admiration or a bitter acknowledgement of her wealth. Something like her reaction when I took her on a tour of my room 28 years before. So you have six bedrooms and you have antique sofas and everything. You're rich, aren't you? I was relieved when we finally left the house. But the tour wasn't over yet. Tanya led me to the garden. Keeping a garden was such a pain, she said. Row cropping, 
draining the soil, weeding, aphids, maggots, cutworms, beetles. Did I know how difficult it was to find a decent gardener or a decent pest man? But it was beautiful, wasn't it? Peas, carrots, look at the kale, five types of kale, rows and rows of kale. They all enjoyed eating kale. Yes, the kids too. Kale did wonders for their health, simply wonders, as did eating eggs from their own chickens. Tanya led me to her piece de resistance, a chicken coop, a spacious wooden construction that housed 10 or 12 chickens, all white, all big, all well-fed. I can't believe you have chickens, I said, unable to contain my laughter. What's so funny, she asked. Tanya had built herself an exact replica of my old dollhouse down to the chicken coop, but she didn't seem to see the absurdity of the situation. Do you remember Catania, I asked. Do I remember what? Catania, our country. She looked at me, straining to understand what I was talking about. Catania, I said, the country that we created for our dolls. Mine lived in a village and yours lived in a city. Vaguely, she said, I remember that we got into a big fight once. I nodded, because you wouldn't share your dolls. Right, I said. I teach my kids to share. Good idea, I said, and looked at my watch. It was time for me to go, I told her. Tanya didn't protest. She said it was a pity that I wouldn't meet her husband and kids, but otherwise she appeared to be satisfied with my visit. As it happened, though, I did get to take a look at her husband. I had just pulled out of the driveway when I saw a silver Lexus pulling in. A man got out of the car, and I recognized him from the photograph above the sofa. He was wearing white linen pants and a white button-down shirt. He took a big pastry box from the passenger seat and started walking toward the house. There was something strange about his gait, but at first I didn't realize what it was. Then I got it. He was putting his entire weight on his right leg. He walked as if his left leg didn't work. He walked as if it were detached at the hip. That was Waiki Wang reading Catania by Lara Vapniar. The story appeared in The New Yorker in October of 2013. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Waiki, it's not an easy thing to get the voice right when you're writing from a child's point of view. Mm-hmm. How do you think that Fafnir manages it here? Well, she does a nice trick that she's um, coming in at it from an adult's point of view, right? She is saying, um, you know, when I when I was a child, I had a family of doll people. And, and I think that's right. That's how you want to do it, that you have this adult lens, but you're able to access a child's voice, a child's perspective. Um, there's a sense of framing. So I, I like the retrospective used here. Um, it shows that there's something that she is trying to reveal or we're trying to dig towards that great scene when they have their conflict. And that, I think, is great storytelling, but also just how maybe when you're telling a friend a story of what happened to you as a child, you're building up all of that tension to that final moment. Mm-hmm. It's funny because there's a there's a conflict in the middle of the story, sort of, and then... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not that the tension dissipates, but we move on. Right. I think that is the conflict I'm talking about. That scene where um, they're at the balcony and they're fighting over the doll. I've never seen little girls fight in a story physically. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that that was quite bold and they never spoke again, right? Um, Until later on when they were both adults. Yeah, yeah. Well, when they first meet, it's a scene of... High drama, you mm-hmm. know, and Katya mm-hmm. is drawn to Tanya by the fact that she makes this incredible scene and turns red and mm-hmm. sends her mother, you know, scurrying. For the blue, for the blue. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think when I was trying to practice reading the story, I laughed a few times and I thought I've read the story, you know, probably five, ten times at this point, and I still find that scene incredibly funny. Yeah. That this yeah. parent just leaves and goes and gets the teacup. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, well, maybe you've never had a tantruming child. <laughs> <laughs> and then the child just calms down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why do you think that that moment attracts Katya? Because she's totally intrigued and admiring. Well, th there's that line that I really love. She was staring at her teacup, waiting for it to explode, um, as a child would. Um, because, you know, in movies, that's obviously what happens. <laughs> but right. then she realized that this real person next to her, Tanya, who is so cartoonish, right? She turns red, she turns beet red. She, you know, she has these very kind of cartoonish attributes sometimes. And and this is a story about dolls. She found that it's kind of like a living doll or a living, living plaything that she's mm -hmm. staring at. And she just is kind of enraptured by it. Um, but also enraptured at how courageous this child can be to do that in front of everyone. It's kind of a performance, right? To, to have yeah. that tantrum and then to totally calm down and say, you know, th that great line, it's it's so much trouble to not, you know, have tea with the right teacup. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Tanya is very independent, that key around her neck. And Katya is always a little bit worried about her incompetence next to this very courageous and confident, but also very binary person. Yeah. So then they, they enter on this friendship, and it's partly a friendship, but it's also right from the get-go a competition, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why do they get into that dynamic so fast? When I was reading it, it felt very natural that as a child, you're comparing environments. How many rooms do you have in your house? How many rooms do I have in my house? And most of the time, that's just observation. But then that jump that Tanya makes while you're rich is sort of that jump that, you know, a child starting to understand a little bit more about circumstances that makes. And then the competition started um, without Katya really even knowing it. I think that's stayed with Tanya, right, for all of her life. That moment, you're rich, and I'm, yeah. and I'm not. Yeah, yeah. It seems as though the the competition between them focuses on these. Well, first on on money, who has more. Secondly, on fathers. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, who has mm -hmm. been more or less abandoned by the father. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, now that you mention that, they also compete at that moment about relatives who have died. That sequence, mm -hmm. right? How did your aunt die? How did your father die? This this kind of like, can I one-up you with a horrific death story? Right, right. Um, and then it goes completely wrong because <laughs> the Antonia's the, father isn't dead. He's just gone. He's gone, right. He just up and right. went. And then in a way, their sort of competitiveness resettles on the dolls mm -hmm. and what kind of life they've built for their dolls, right? Right. Um one of the things that I thought was remarkable is that shoebox. One was this skyscraper that had fallen down, and this other one was this skyscraper standing up. And I thought that's a really neat way of describing, you know, city versus village. And eventually that's kind of what happened, that they have city versus village, and then they have a map that they're going to try to connect the two with a bridge. But the, bri right. <laughs> but the bridge doesn't quite work out because of the glue. Right. <laughs> A river of snot, yeah. A river of snot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the map thing is interesting because that's sort of a recurring theme in the story because if they have this map, it's their main project. They work on it for months, you know, until they're both covered in paint. It's quite simple map, so I have a hard time imagining what they're working on. But then we get to this point later in the story where, again, they're sort of competing over over maps and directions where Tanya's saying, don't listen to your GPS, follow my directions. And <laughs> Katya's saying, well, I'm going to listen to the GPS and then I'm just going to choose my own way based on these two right. things, you know. And, and somehow end up in the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that moment, that moment when they fight, when the, the father doll sort of comes between them as Katya's moment of triumph which sends Tanya into a full tantrum mode. 
why does it get to that point? Why why is everything so heightened between these two girls? Mm. Well, you know, she she situates it in a good timing that there's a summer. Tanya's going and visiting, I think, her grandfather's village and changes. And I find children change a lot over the summers just because there's just so much time. And Katya's waiting for her. So she's this, she's the friend that's waiting. And I like that moment when Tanya coming back makes her wait a little bit more. Um, who knows if she's actually <laughs> sick, but she's like, I'll come over when I want to come over. So there's already that sense of maybe Tanya's not that desperate to see her anymore. And Katya is feeling a little hurt by that. Katya just wanted to show her this boy doll, this father doll, not necessarily out of any sort of bad intentions, just because it was such a novelty to the doll family. And I actually imagined if that fight hadn't happened, they might have tried to share the father doll, who knows. Um, <laughs> but it does escalate really quickly. Um, when I think about how words are used in the story, Tanya's father defected, right? And I, you know, when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting word. And the, this father doll has as a defect. So mm -hmm. that, that really echoed with me. And I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't actually thought of that. I mean, for me in that scene, it's just so much about who has the power. Mm -hmm. um, at least for Tanya, you know, she's she's already shown her power by delaying for three days. She's come over quite pleased with herself and pleased mm -hmm. with her tan and, and so on and her superiority. And she's taller and she looks like she had a good summer. <laughs> Yeah. And then Katya pulls out this one thing she has that Tanya mm -hmm. doesn't have and things blow up. You know, she feels inferior again, which which is how she felt before the summer. Right. And so it blows up because Tanya's taunting her and Katya takes the bait. Right. But then there's that sort of extraordinary line about how good it feels to hit her. Right. <laughs> you know? So you sense that that there has been something building up in Katya. Yeah, and I think it starts with innocent, I want to be your friend. And then Tanya does this thing of having Katya relook at her surroundings. Are we rich? Are we not rich? What does it mean to not have a father? What does it mean to have a father who's dead or not gone or things like that? And that line of it feels so good to, to hit Tanya comes right after this odd line about how hitting her felt like hitting rubber, right? Um, right. And it almost felt like she was, you know, beating up one of her dolls. So I, I didn't know at that point if it was she was hitting Tanya as as this real person or just kind of trying to beat up all of her dolls out of frustration that they're having a fight over this father doll. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It made me think also of Tanya's doll that's all broken arms and smushed face sitting behind the Who shoes. Who went off on business. <laughs> um, so many, so many metaphors. Another thing that's fascinating to me about this story is that is the layers of storytelling because we have Lara of Apniar telling us a story about two girls. We have Katya telling us her story. And then we have both girls telling the stories of their dolls, you know, writing lives for their dolls that are quite different. There's something very layered about it, even though the voice is consistent throughout. Right. The 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 real world and then the the make-believe world of Catania, this country that they've imagined and living in this make-believe country and having doll stories in this make-believe country. Um, it, it's as make-believe as this father who's in America, right? This mythical land that somehow he's there doing business and they're here playing with their dolls. Well, it's interesting. The father is not such a deadbeat as everyone thought he was, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. he's he's up and left left his wife unemployable, um, left his daughter. But then he resurfaces and arranges for her to, to emigrate and to go to college in the U.S. And in a way, that takes power back from Katya or takes superiority back from Katya because he, he isn't what they thought. And she has to go to that party to, to see it face to face, the evidence that she is leaving. <laughs> Right. And she wonders why Tanya invites her. But of course, Tanya invites her because Tanya is still competing, right? <laughs> and Tanya's finally got a, scored a point. Here she is going off to another country and presumably loved by her father. I suppose there's that underlying subtext. I'm also interested in the use of shame in the story because Kutch is kind of ashamed of not having a father. She's sort of ashamed of 
her incompetence of being unable to turn on a stove, she's embarrassed by herself, Tanya seems to direct her shame outwards rather than inwards. I mean, they're sort of interesting in their different responses. Katya is always finding ways to see herself as inferior, and maybe that's the ultimate difference between them, because Tanya is always trying to find ways to see herself as superior. Mm -hmm. And then, as you said, we, we have this enormous jump in time, a couple of paragraphs, and we've, we've moved ahead by 20 years or so. How does Lara Vapnir manage that? How does she pack so much in? Well, I think about that when I read the story and that time is so extended for the first, you know, 70%. And then she goes to America with her husband. Um, her mother dies. That character at the beginning that we spent so much time with, she gets a divorce. There's that sense of, you know, telling you that backstory of all these really important events in a character's life but the restraint to really not delve into them and still keep the story focused on that day. Um, Tanya Facebook messaged me to reconnect. Um, I think it's a good example of we can skip, quote unquote, some of the boring stuff and put in <laughs> the highlights and then move to the relationship that as readers we are more invested in. We care about the girls. We care about the girls yeah. as adults. Um, and if they've changed. Yeah. Well, why did they care about each other so much? I mean, as soon as Katya gets to the U.S., she looks up, tries to find Tanya. And as soon as Katya changes her name back to her maiden name, Tanya's right there. You know, she's clearly been searching daily. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I mean, they, they've come over as as immigrants, and you're always trying to reconnect within your immigrant group. And you know, we think about competition. There's no greater competition than among immigrant families trying to compete through, I don't know, children, success, jobs, just to see if you've really made it. That is the ultimate competition, right? If you can make it in this new country. And I imagine Tanya was looking for her for a while just to prove something. And she's also curious. And I think she wants to, she wants to compare a little bit. Sure, there's some things in Katya's life that hasn't gone great. But she's actually pretty well adjusted <laughs> and her career is going well and she's going on a nice drive and she's thinking, well, this is the first time I can do whatever I want. She has her freedom and she has to see what Tanya has. Well, I think there's that showing off of I can do whatever I want now. I think she also wants to mention that. Yeah. I love that line where she says, you know, I was aching to know what had become of her or at least what she looked like now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And and don't you think there's that small victory when she thought it was Tanya's mother coming through the door? Yes. yes. It's this constant of rivalry in the midst of friendship, which, you know, happens to girls everywhere. <laughs> right. It happens. Um, and I don't think it goes away. We just become a little bit better at maybe hiding it or being more self-aware, right? Yeah. Um, but it's it's almost like faith. She she throws away the directions and the GPS and somehow still ends up on Tanya's property. How big is this property? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's pretty big. Yeah. And so, you know, that's also the structural irony of the story. Here we have Tanya who had her city dolls and Katya who had her country dolls. And Tanya has fully replicated Katja's doll's life. She's had her house painted red with yellow awnings. She's got the chicken coop. Katja, meanwhile, lives in the city and has her freedom and can drive off anywhere. So do you feel like that sort of structural irony is too easy or do you feel like it's sort of unexpected? I was surprised when yeah. I first read it because I thought, where is this going to go? Girls, dollhouse, where is this going to go? And I think that there is something very real about it. Maybe because it wasn't emphasized so much what Tanya was doing in the city or what her job was. Or Katya, I mean. Um, it didn't seem so convenient. Um, and I think there was a good moment when Katya totally loses it at the chicken coop because she thinks, how do you have so many chickens? What, what are you doing with all these chickens? That also made me laugh. <laughs> well, she needs a lot of chickens to equal Katya's one giant chicken. One giant chicken. <laughs> and in that way, I think at that moment, Katya thinks, well, I, I've won when she sees the chickens. Yeah, she's like, you, you have no idea how hard it is to take care of all these things. 
you're stuck. You're stuck in this great property taking care of all these chickens <laughs> and all these bedrooms. So I think, you know, that was that final maybe victory for Katya. It wasn't even the wealth that astounded her. It was just you had so much money and this is the thing that you thought. This is what do you did. <laughs> I have never left your mind. Yeah. Tanya wouldn't know that that Katya just got bored of the dolls and gave them away. Right. In in her mind, they're still the center of Katya's existence. Right. And so so when I got to that moment where, you know, Katya asked Tanya, Do you remember Katanya? I was going to ask you this. Do you, do you believe when Tanya says no, she didn't really remember it? Yeah, that's my question for you. You know, it's, <laughs> it's um, <laughs> well, it's interesting because when the story came out, you know, I did an interview with uh, Lara about it. I'm going to read you what she said. She said, this is one story that I have trouble interpreting. I can offer three versions. In the first version, Tanya is the crazy one. Her entire life has been subconsciously influenced by that childhood trauma, even her choice of a husband. She's a beautiful woman, and I assume she's met many men, but when she met that man, white clothes, detached hip and all, something clicked in a very special way, though she couldn't have explained what and why. In the second version, Katya is the crazy one, and she blows some vague similarities between Tanya's life and her doll's situation way out of proportion. Or the most bizarre interpretation is that both Katya and Tanya depart from reality and live out the lives of the other girls' dolls. <laughs> so... <laughs> I guess which of those is your interpretation? <laughs> I, I I prefer the second one that they're kind of living out each other's lives um, because it sort of deems neither of them as crazy. I don't want either of them to be crazy, crazy, you know, in that way. Um, I think mm -hmm. we all have a subconscious thing of, oh, they have something. I, I kind of want it, so I'm going to try to get it, um, but maybe take for granted what I had. Mm -hmm. One thing that's really interesting is just the complete absence of the men from the story. Tanya's father resurfaces. We never see him. It's not clear if she even sees him. We never know anything about Katya's husband, and then he's gone. And um, we get this one quick glimpse of Tanya's husband, but they're bit players. Even the father doll is a bit player. He's just there to kind of trigger a fight. Right. Why do you think Lara Vapniar constructed it that way? Well, it, it goes with the fatherlessness of that era um, and how something was broken about these fathers, hence the doll. Um, and the narrative is dominantly female. You have this lineage of women raising each other. And this woman that then is able to immigrate to America for school or for work, I find that incredible, of that sense of just launching yourself and seeing what happens. You know, yes, there might be no fathers or no men, but do we need them here or would they help us or would they, you know, would they hinder us? Um, and how are we going to do it on our own? So I found the absence quite refreshing and also um, <laughs> necessary. I, I didn't think I would believe it if we gave more voice to um, Katya's husband or even that doll-like husband at the end of the story. He's just there to bring the pastries in uh, <laughs> for the chickens. <laughs> um, yeah, and he's broken. Yeah. And so, you know, if you've never had a father, well, if they do appear, what would their function be? And it, it's almost kind of like children thinking about um, I guess the father sits here and nurses his leg while the women raise the children and put their hair back on in, in the bathroom. <laughs> right. And dote on him. Yeah. Um, yeah. If this competition between Tanya and Katya has lasted their whole lives, do you think we have a winner at the end? Well, I think each girl thinks that she's won. Tanya's given that tour, right? Now that she's mm -hmm. given that tour, she's at ease. Um, whether or not the person receiving that tour thought it was ridiculous or absurd. So I think either side thinks that they've won, but there's no actual winner out of this. There can't be an actual winner because they've lost their friendship in a way. Um, they have a lot of commonalities, um, coming to a new country, making a life for themselves. And that would be something that is a shared experience, maybe that they could talk about. But I, I think they're still wrapped up in this competition that a lot of their commonalities are almost erased. That's what kind of struck me as very true about the, the immigrant experience. Yeah, Katya's so worried about what she's going to say about her life. And 
she says it didn't matter. Tanya never asked. Right. But I'm sure they've both went through a lot of pain and um, hardship that they just don't want to admit to because admitting to that would mean maybe losing a little bit of power or losing a little bit of station. And I mean, I've seen that, you know, just with immigrants and how families talk about that experience. So I found that very true, though a little bit sad and and what is lost. Yeah. Do you think they'd ever see each other again? Hmm. I don't think so. Tanya had this task that she will do. And then now she Tanya will live out her maybe happy life. I think if they did reconnect, it would be much, much later, um, maybe another 10 years or 15 years. Um, I imagine they might cross paths accidentally. It seemed like by the end, <laughs> that crossing of paths was almost faded. And the community, it seems like, would be small enough that they might actually end up seeing each other or having some mutual friends. But I don't necessarily think they would ever become good friends again after something like this happening. Yeah, perhaps with the wisdom of of old age, they'll be over the competition. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You you want to think we grow out of these things. (laughs) I imagine siblings still are very competitive by an older age, so who knows? Well, thank you so much, Waikie. Thank you. Laura Vapniar is the author of two short story collections and four novels, including Memoirs of a Muse, Still Here, and most recently, Divide Me by Zero, which was a New York Times editor's choice. Waiki Wang's first novel, Chemistry, won the Penn Hemingway Award in 2018, and won Wang a spot on the National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 list. Her second novel, Joan is OK, will be published next year. You can download more than 160 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazines read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>